So, uh, well, good morning. My name is Brand. I'm one of the pastors here at River City. It is great to be with you. Uh, big thanks to my friend Michael and Aaron as well, who uh, gave me a couple weeks to start working ahead on some other things and take a few days off. And grateful for them. And so, looking forward to be back with you again together this morning for worship. Uh, if you are new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you. Glad that you would join us. And man, I'd love to get to know you. I know the rest of our church would. And so, if if you if there's any ways that we can serve you or help you get connected to the community. Uh, we genuinely would love to do that. And so some, come find somebody who looks like they know which direction the bathrooms are around here, and uh, we'd love to get to know you and get you plugged into the community. So excited to uh, continue walking our way through our series in the book of 1 Corinthians this morning. And so if you've been gone like me, or if you're just joining us for the first time, let me just briefly catch you up on where we're at, and we'll dive into our study again this morning. So 1 Corinthians, as we've said over and over, is a letter written by the Apostle Paul uh, to a church in the ancient city of Corinth, which was a Greco-Roman city. And Corinth was this incredibly important port city in the ancient world. It was located in basically at this little spot where the Greek peninsula at the end connects to the mainland. And because of that, it was kind of this port city that connected trade between Rome and the west of the rest of the Mediterranean. So it was this very wealthy and influential and important port city in the ancient Mediterranean world, but it was also a new city. Rome had destroyed the city of Corinth and then rebuilt it and resettled it just less than about 100 years prior to the writing of this letter that Paul writes. And so, um, so Corinth is full of people who have this who it's, it's like a new money kind of a city. It was settled mostly by freed slaves and former army veterans, and so you have a city full of people who uh, don't come from a strong family line or come from some kind of huge history, but instead a, a people that are looking to make a name for themselves and make an identity for themselves and, and create a lineage for themselves in this new place, in this new city. And so there's this incredibly upwardly mobile mindset that was at the very heart of the Corinthian culture at large. And everything in Corinth revolved around climbing the social and economic ladders of the day or maintaining your place at the top of those ladders one commentator just so helpfully puts it, he says, the ideal of the Corinthian culture, it was the reckless development of the individual. Corinth was a place you, met, you went to make a name and an identity for yourself. It was all about you. And tragically, what we see is that the church in Corinth was no exception. You see, as you read the letter, what's obvious is that their highest priority is not God's glory, it's not the advancing of his kingdom, it's their own glory and the advancing of their own social agenda and social status in their world. As we've seen throughout our study, this, this self-focused mindset, this, this idolatry of self, it was at pretty much the heart of, of pretty much every one of the issues that Paul has to address in this young church Specifically, in the last few chapters, we've been seeing how Paul's been dealing with how this self-centeredness was leading the Corinthian believers to, to exercise their um, personal freedoms and liberties in such a way that, that in which they just basically totally disregarded how their actions might affect either fellow believers or their non-Christian friends and neighbors. And see, there were some in the Corinthian church who were using their freedoms in Christ to engage in their culture in ways that, that weren't inherently sinful, but were actually having the effect of leading younger and weaker brothers and sisters in Christ back into lives of idolatry and sin, as well as causing their non-Christian neighbors to infer that worshiping idols just was not a, wasn't a problem. It wasn't a big deal. 
And so instead of being concerned about how the exercise of their freedoms was, was negatively impacting others, they write Paul this letter and they're trying to just get him to affirm that they really are free to do whatever they want to do. And Paul, in his letter in 1 Corinthians, he, he responds to them and he, and he says that, well, technically, theologically, yes, you do have all these different freedoms in Christ, he confronts the underlying selfish attitudes of their heart. And he's challenging them not to ask what are they free to do, but instead what are they free to give up for the sake of others. You see, the mark of Christian maturity isn't understanding and exercising your own personal rights and freedoms, but instead in, in by being willing, even glad, to lay down your own rights and freedoms for the glory of God and for the good of others. And I, I go over all of that stuff, and I, I try to highlight this pervasive problem of this self-centeredness in the Corinthian society at large, and, and specifically in the church in Corinth, because not just because I want to catch you up on our story and where we're at in the book, but because what, what that, those kinds of ideas are directly connected with what Paul is going to teach in the upcoming chapters that we're about to head into. You see, in chapters 8 through 10, where we've been for the last few weeks, about a month or so, Paul's confronting the way, the self-centered ways that Christians think about and exercise their, their Christian liberties in the context of the broader culture and the broader world around them. And he's trying to get them to think about God's glory instead of their own personal advantage as they think about what it looks like for them to live in the world. But in chapters 11 through 14, the next coming weeks and months that we're going to be in these chapters, Paul transitions from confronting this context of how Christians are thinking about living in the world to how they think about exercising their Christian liberties specifically in the context of the worship gathering. They're gathering to worship together. You see, and in both of these contexts, the, the point that you're going to see is that, that he's functionally just making the same point. He's trying to get at the same underlying thing, and it's the, the big idea that he has been getting at throughout the whole book. And he's talking again, as we'll see, about how the gospel motivates and empowers us no longer to live for our own good <coughs> and our own glory, but instead to live for the glory of God and to live for the good of others. See, what you're going to see is, you're going to see Paul continually coming back to this reality that, that when the good news of the gospel, when the, when the person and the work of Jesus really clicks in your heart, when who he is and all that he has done for you really starts to take deep root in your heart, what happens is that you will increasingly reflect Jesus in the way that you think about and exercise your own liberties and your own freedoms. And like he did, instead of seeking to exercise those things for your own personal advantage or in order to draw attention to yourself, instead, like Jesus, you'll increasingly be characterized by being willing and glad to choose to use those freedoms and those liberties in a way that prioritizes God's glory and the advancing of his name and his kingdom, not your own. I see, in the first issue that we're going to see Paul addressing along these lines in chapter 11 about how the Corinthians are, are, should be thinking and exercising their liberties in the worship gathering in a way that glorifies God instead of glorifies themselves. On the, on the surface, what we're going to see is that it seems like it has everything to do with attire, what people are wearing or not wearing, and, and how they're presenting themselves as they participate in the corporate worship gathering. But, <coughs> excuse me. But the reality is, is that 
What Paul's trying to get at is something much deeper and much more foundational than mere clothing. Instead, what he's actually highlighting is the importance of the equal and yet distinct ways that men and women are both created and called to bear God's image. He's getting at the unique and distinct and equal ways in which men and women are called to bear God's image. In a lot of ways, what Paul has to say in the first part of chapter 11 about the ways that men and women are created and called to bear God's image is how that's meant to be visible in the worship gathering is really a commentary. It's really an application of Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And so because understanding what it means for us to be God's image bearers, and because that is so foundational, not just to understanding this first section in chapter 11, but to understanding what it means to be humans in the first place, uh, what we're going to do this week is actually uh, press pause on 1 Corinthians 11, and we're going to dive all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. We're going to take a look in those very early chapters of God's word, what it looks like for us to think about what it means to be made in God's image, and how that impacts our understanding of what it means to be men and women who are created in God's image. And so that's my, my hope for this morning. We're going to kind of use this morning to set up our study next week. And so I trust that it will be good for your heart as we study God's word this morning and think about what it looks like for us as men and women to see ourselves as God's image-bearing people. So let me pray, and we'll dive into our study. We are going to need it the next couple of weeks for sure. So... Jesus, thank you for our time together. Thanks that you love us. Thanks that you are good. Thank you, Jesus, that you have given us your word so that we might know you. More than that, Jesus, that we might know what it looks like to follow you, that we might know our very purpose and identity as humans. And so, God, as we come together this morning and study your word, we just really humbly ask that you would be empowering our time together to be fruitful and good, that you'd be giving us humble and teachable hearts so that we might put ourselves under the good authority of your word and that you, by your spirit, would be graciously helping us to see where maybe our own world and our own culture's view of things is out of line with you and with your word and your ways. Help us to see your word, God, and, and the identity and calling that you give us, not just as informationally true, but as good news, Jesus. Good news that will empower us to, to love and serve you and to live out our calling as your people in the world. So we need you for all of that, Jesus. Thank you. Amen. All right, well, uh, we are going to be in uh, two sections in Genesis 1 and 2 together. And so uh, if you've brought a Bible, you can open that up with us. Otherwise, it'll be on the screen behind me. Two little sections, Genesis 1, the end of 1 and the beginning, and, and then fast-forwarding uh, into chapter 2. So Genesis 1, verse 26 to 28, reads this way. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and over the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Genesis chapter 2, fast forward, verse 18, continues this way. And the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. 
Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. And so the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds and in the sky and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. And so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place where, uh, with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, now, it, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And this is why a man leaves his father and mother, and he's united to his wife, and they become one flesh. All right. Like I said, before we dive into what these verses have to, have to teach us about, about what our identity and calling has to do with what it means to be men and women specifically, we need to first kind of zoom back out a little bit and ask the question about what it means for humanity in general to be made in God's image and why that matters. See, verse 26, right? It says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Verse 27 goes on. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God. He created them. See, what we see happening throughout Genesis 1 and 2 right, is that the purpose of creation, the purpose of the world and everything in it is to, in some unique way to reflect the creator. Psalm chapter 1 and 2, or Psalm chapter 19, verse 1, it echoes this when it tells us that, that the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies, they proclaim the works of his hands. You see, in the, in the beauty of creation and its intricacy and its vastness and its, and its wonder, the creation reveals something to us about the one who made it. And what verse 26 and 27, they're specifically telling us is that in a very distinct, in a very unique way, humanity was created to reveal something about the creator God. See, in a way that no other part of creation does, people reflect something about God. And what the passage makes really, really clear is that that's a big deal. Three times in two verses, all in very slightly different ways, it talks about how mankind is made in God's image. And there is no other part of creation in all of Genesis 1 and 2 that, is, that that language is used about. And so when something is incredibly unique, when there's this pattern change and when it's repeated, especially in Hebrew literature, that's like the big red flashing stop sign with the lights around it that's like, focus, this is a really important, really big deal kind of stuff. And so Genesis is highlighting the fact that humanity is uniquely made in God's image. And so the question is, what does that mean? And why is it so important that we stop and pay attention to that? Well, it's a topic that theologians have spent all kinds of pages writing about, but I think boiling it down, there's really two key aspects about what it really means to, be, to bear God's image, two key things that the passage shows us about what it means to be made to God's image. And the first and the foremost is that the image of God is something that all humans possess. It's something inherent to who we are. Verse 26 says that God makes mankind, humanity, in his image and likeness. And so the image of God is something that is inherent to every person, everywhere, at all times. It is a part of the very definition of what it means to be human. And so this is true regardless of gender or regardless of race or ethnicity or culture or wealth or strength or ability or disability. The reality is that we all bear God's image and so are immeasurably valuable because we bear the image of, cre of the creator whose value is beyond measure. 
And the truth is, is that, that, that truth really has power to transform our hearts on a foundational kind of level. And so some of you, I just want to say, if you are here this morning and you have ever been told that you are worthless or that, you are, that you've been treated as though you are worthless or that you have looked at yourself and thought that you are worthless or you, you simply feel that way about yourself, I just need you to abundantly and clearly hear that is a lie from the pit of hell. And the reality is that because you are made in God's image, you have immeasurable dignity and value and worth. And it doesn't have to do with your performance. And it doesn't have to do with your success. And it doesn't have to do with anything that you bring to the table. It has to do with the fact that you have been made in the image of God. Now to be clear, what we possess what it means to bear God's image, to be made in God's image and likeness, isn't, isn't about a physical likeness to God. The Bible is clear that God is spirit. And so rather, what humanity possesses, as one commentator puts it, is a physical manifestation of God's essence. And that means that unlike any other part of creation, what it means to bear the image of God is that we have the capacity to know God and to reflect his nature and character in the way that we relate to the rest of creation on his behalf as his representatives. And so humanity is uniquely like God and able to reflect him in, no, in ways that no other part of creation is. And that leads us to the second thing the passage highlights about what it means to bear the image of God. And, and we see that in verse 26 and 28. We see that our identity as image bearers of God is directly tied to our activity as image bearers of God. So it's not just an inherent truth about who we are, it's also connected to what we are called to do, how we are called to live. 26, it says that God makes us in his image so that we can rule over creation. Verse 28, God tells Adam and Eve to fill the earth and subdue it and rule over it. Now, we do not have time to do the deep dive on the deep implications of what that means this morning, but suffice it to say, what I want you to see is that, that our activity as image bearers of God is tied to our identity as image bearers of God, right? Those two things are linked. How we live and what we do is tied to who God has made us to be. That's the big, that's the big linchpin I want you to you see in this section. In other words, see, the, the bearing the image of God is not just something we possess, it is something we embody, something we embody in what we do and in how we live in our actions. One commentator puts it this way. He says, while a baby may be affirmed to be the image of its father, few can recognize that image based on the inherent image and the relationship with the father. The image grows more recognizable as the child matures. This does not essentially take place in a physical way, but rather in a way that the child mirrors the attitudes, expressions, and character of his or her father. Jen Wilkin, just a brilliant woman, writer. I'm so grateful for her, for her writing and, and how that's impacted our church and many others. But she just writes it this way. She, she says it, uh, that she echoes that when she highlights how God's image bears, being God's image bears is about reflecting who God is in the way that we interact with creation as he does. Ultimately, she points out how that means looking like Jesus. We'll get more to that later. And so as we live for God and as we worship him with lives that reflect his nature and his character into the world, what we're doing is we are being his image-bearing people in the world. My daughter, Emma, uh, she is a wildly creative little girl. That girl, like three seconds after she gets out of bed, is crafting. I don't even know how it's possible to do it that quick. Like, 
I'm still thinking about waking up by the time she's already like created three projects or whatever else she's got going on, you know? But I, I love to encourage her creativity. And I love to do that because what she's doing in her creativity, she is reflecting something about the creative maker whose image she bears. And so as we enjoy a sunset together, or as we look at God's creation and all the animals and creatures that he has made, I love pointing out to her where her creativity comes from and what it's really all about. It's about reflecting the creative maker who has made her and whose image she bears. John Calvin, he sums it up this way. He says, being God's image bears means we are like a mirror that reflects something of God into the earth. And so, in these two ways, in our inherent possession of the image of God and in our ongoing embodiment of the image of God, humanity is created and called to reflect the image of its creator in ways that no other part of creation does. And the reality is, is that has deep and far-reaching implications, not least of which is the relationship between men and women. Now, like I said, there are deep and far-reaching implications, and we are zooming into one part as it connects with our passage in 1 Corinthians 11 next week. But I want you to see, notice in verse 27 how the, the passage specifically highlights not just that mankind in general is made in God's image, but that both parts of humanity, that men and women, are specifically, distinctly mentioned as being made in God's image. What that means is that our gender isn't integrally connected with what it means for us to be God's image-bearing people. It's integrally connected with what it means for us to embody God's image in our world. And so, what does Genesis tell us about how our identity and calling as God's image-bearers is connected with our gender as men or women? Well, like I said, there's far more here than we have time to get into, but there's two things that I want to highlight this morning, two foundational truths that are going to set up our time as we study next week in 1 Corinthians 11. And the first is this, and we want to, I want to show you the equality of men and women as God's image-bearing people, and I want to show you the necessity of men and women as God's image-bearing people, okay? So let's talk about those two things this morning. Number one, Genesis, number, Genesis 1, 27 and 8, it shows us the incredible equality of men and women as God's image bearers. Verse 27, both men and women specifically are created in God's image. Verse 28, both men and women are blessed by God. Verse 28 again, both men and women are commissioned by God as his ruling representatives in the earth. And so men and women both equally bear the image of God. Men and women both have the same identity and dignity and value and worth because both men and women are created in the image of God. I think sadly, the Bible has often been used or viewed in a ways that causes women to be seen as less than or as inferior to men. And I just want to just overtly highlight how that is absolutely in opposition to God's heart and his very design for humanity. It's the farthest thing from the truth. You see, from the very beginning, we see this incredible equality of men and women in God's word. And throughout the Old Testament, what we see is God's people are consistently and, and relentlessly called to view and honor and, and treat women with a degree of honor and respect and dignity that far surpasses any ancient culture that it would be compared to. And as we've seen already in 1 Corinthians 6, when we talk about intimacy and marriage, and as we'll see again next week when we talk about 1 Corinthians 
Corinthians 11, the New Testament church as well lifted up women and, and gave them rights and freedoms that would have been seen as scandalous, both to a Jewish world and a pagan world. And so there is an incredible equality and dignity that is given to both men and women, and it is crucial that we see that. Because it's not just a cultural thing, or it's not just a popular kind of thing. It is integral to what it means to be God's image-bearing people in the world. And so if we look at the men and women and see an inequality there, then that is out of line with God's word and his design for us. So there's, incredible, there's an incredible equality here. But also there is a real meaningful diversity Genesis tells us that men and women as God's image bearers are equally created, equally blessed, equally commissioned. But it doesn't tell us that men and women are the same. In fact, there's an emphasis on the distinction between male and female that we see in the passage. And that brings us to the second thing that Genesis highlights for us. We see the necessity of men and women as God's image bearers. Now, you do not need me to tell you this. But men and women are pretty different, right? right? We are different physically. We are different emotionally. We are different in all kinds of ways. I remember thinking early on after we got married that like at least half of the things that we bought would never have existed in my life if I wasn't married. And I was like, I don't even understand why we need any of the things that we just spent all this money on. Like, I don't know what purpose do any of these things even have, right? We're different in all kinds of ways, in the ways we think, in the ways we feel, or all different kinds of ways we are different. But what I need you to see this morning is that that difference is not an added bonus, it is not a happy accident, nor is it a liability. We see in our passage that the, that the unique, distinct nature of men and women is actually a necessity. It is in necessity as what it means to be God's image bearers. Genesis 2.18, it says, God says, it is not good for the man to be alone, I will make a helper suitable for him. When you see that phrase, not good, in Genesis 1 and 2, that should shock you. Because over and over and over and over, when you read God's work of creation in Genesis chapter 1, is that every time he finishes creation, he says, and it was very good. And it was good, and it was good, and it was good. Each day of creation. And you get to this section, and it says, and it was not good. And you're like, What? What, wait, okay, hold on. Something is, there's something really out of line here. Genesis says that, that not over and over, right? And so Genesis, do, Genesis 2, and it tells us that something is not good. We should hold up. We should, we should look. You see, there's something really significant about the incompletion that the passage holds in tension until not just man, but woman is also created See, creation is not complete until both men and women are present. Creation is not very good until both men and women are present. And the question that you have to ask is why? Why, why is that the case? Well, because alone, Adam could not fulfill his identity and purpose as God's image-bearing representative. He needed a helper we need to talk for a minute about what that word helper means. I think a lot of times when we think about that word, we can think about just an assistant, right? Somebody who kind of comes along and makes a job easier or more fun or, or whatever else it is. My kids all the time, they want to help me, right? Whether it's in the kitchen or doing yard work. And I love that they love to, to help. 
me, right? And I am glad that they want to be with me, and I try to encourage it all the time. But I think we can all be honest if you have kids. Their helping usually looks more like hurting than it does helping, right? The, I just want to be clear. That is not the kind of language. That's not the kind of picture that the Bible is using when it refers to this language of helper here. You see, helper is most often used when talking about God himself in Scripture. It's most often used when talking about God himself. And it's not talking about God as an assistant or lending a helping hand. That word helper here, it, it has a meaning of a necessary and essential and indispensable ally. A necessary, essential, and indispensable ally. It is one with whom you cannot do without. You see, let me tell you, I would not describe Emma or Caleb's helping as necessary or indispensable, right? In fact, I might use opposite kinds of words for that, right? But when I think about God, oh, oh yes, I would describe his kind of helping as, as necessary, as essential, as indispensable, as, as something I could not go without. And that's how we need to think about this language here, about the necessity of women as part of humanity, who bear God's image as a necessary, essential, and indispensable allies. Verse 20 says, so talk about what that helper looks like, right? Verse 20 says that among all the animals, there were no suitable helpers because humanity needed sameness to bear God's image. Adam's first response when he sees Eve in verse 23 is, is essentially, he says, one like me. Literally in the, in the Hebrew, he sings a song and he says, at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Because what he sees, unlike any other part of creation, is he sees that one is like him, another human. But who God creates as man's necessary ally is not one who is just like him. Because humanity needed difference, it needed distinction to bear God's image. You see, in order to live out our identity and purpose as God's image bears, we need both sameness and difference. We need both unity and diversity because the God whose image we bear is characterized that way, whose likeness we reflect is characterized that way. In verse 1, chapter, chapter 1, 26, God says, let us make mankind in our image. See, it's only when God creates humanity that he was referred to in the plural. We see a glimpse in Genesis 1 of the Trinity, Trinitarian language we see throughout Scripture. And so just as there is one Trinity, one God in Trinity with multiple parts, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, so in humanity there is one humanity with multiple parts, male and female. And so there is sameness and there is difference just like within the Trinity there is perfect unity and perfect equality, there is also distinction. Throughout Scripture we see that each member of the Trinity functions in different ways, each with equal power and value and equal authority, but also with equal interdependence on one another. One cannot be taken away. All of the parts are necessary. And what the Bible is abundantly clear on is that while there is perfect unity and perfect equality in the Godhead, there is also meaningful difference there. And Genesis is showing us that our, our sameness as humans, as well as our difference in, in our genders, are a necessary and crucial component 
of our very identity as God's image bearers and our purpose as his commissioned representatives. Jen Wilkin, again, she puts it this way. She says, this does not mean that men and women exercise authority or bear God's image in identical or interchangeable ways. What it does mean, however, is that both men and women are necessary for the image of God to be demonstrated to the world. See, that's why the equality of men and women should be so important to us as Christians. That's why it should matter to us so deeply and profoundly. Not because equality is a popular topic in our world today. Not because it's hip or cool to talk about the equality of men and women. It should matter to us because the equality of men and women is crucial. It is necessary as we think about what it means for us to be God's image-bearing people. And so it should matter to us deeply. But it's also why the distinction of genders should matter to us also as Christians. See, the, the distinction of men and women, it's not about morality, it's not about personality, it's not about culture, it is about our very identity and purpose as God's image bearers. And we'll talk more specifically next week as we study 1 Corinthians 11 and the outworkings of this reality and how men and women are created and called to equally and distinctly reflect God's image. But for this week, the thing I want you to understand is that the equality and distinction of men and women, they really matter to God. It matters to him. It's important, not just that there are men and women, that they are equal and yet they are distinct. Because ultimately, they are about him. Ultimately, our, our gender and our humanity is ultimately the purpose of those things is to reflect him and to bear his image. See, and yet we live in a world that tells us that along with everything else, that our, that our gender, our manhood, or our womanhood, that it is ultimately about us. That it's something we can discover for ourselves, that it's a part of our personal self-made identities, that we're to express our manhood or womanhood in whatever ways that we see fit to do it. And God's word says just the opposite. It says that our gender is actually something that God gives to us. It is something that is received, not something that is discovered. 26 says that God creates male and female. In his image, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God's distinction, the, the gender that he gives, is not just an arbitrary designation. It's not just that you need half women and half men to procreate a society. That's not what it's about. Instead, our, our gender is an integral part of the calling for humanity, both men and women, in equal and distinct ways, in both ways that are same and uniquely different, to reflect the nature and the character of God who is characterized by both unity and sameness and difference. So it's part of the calling that we have to bear God's image and to reflect his likeness into the world. See, the reality is that the problem is that we've all chosen to reject the identity and calling God gives us. 
And instead of choosing to receive the identity and calling that he gives us, every one of us, in all different kinds of ways and forms, we choose to manufacture identities for ourselves. And specifically with regards to our gender, we, we, used to, we choose to see it as yet another thing that's about us to be used for our purposes and to our benefit or discarded to, uh, to fit our own feelings or needs or agendas or purposes. And we live for ourselves and not ultimately for God. The root of our reluctance to obey God and our reluctance to allow our lives to ultimately be about his glory instead of our own is our unwillingness to let go of our self-made identities. Especially in our world, defining your own identity is heralded as the ultimate freedom. That that's where true liberation is found when you get to say who you really are. But that is really just a chain around your neck that only leads to death. You see, God created us for him and for his glory. And so it is only when we live in accordance with his good design that we will actually find the life and joy that you are really looking for. See, God's the good creator of the universe. And he knows how it works and he designed how it should be run. And he does that not just as, a, as a, some kind of mean dictator. He does it as a loving father who dearly loves his children and who longs for their good and their great joy. And so the question is this. How do we turn from our manufactured identities and instead turn to their, our true identities as God's image bearers and begin to live out our lives as men and women as God's image bearers, seeing our gender as something ultimately about him and for his glory and to be lived out and used as he directs because it's about him. Rosaria Butterfield, she sums it up so beautifully. She writes this. She says, stepping into God's story means abandoning a deeply held desire to make meaning of our own lives and on our own terms based on the preciousness of our own feelings. We must leave and cleave or we will never really understand what it means that Christ died in our place. For we can only take this leap if Christ jumps for us. While we can beg him with a contrite heart, we cannot accomplish salvation or repentance or sanctification at our own will. See, the reality is that all of us are sinners by nature and choice. And we have all rejected our identity, our God-given identity as his image-bearing people. And we have all lived for ourselves and our own glory. And sin has cracked our proverbial image-bearing mirrors but here's the good news. There was one who came and perfectly bore the image of God, who did what we were supposed to do. Colossians chapter 1.15 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of his being. What we see is that the good news of the gospel is that where we failed to be God's image-bearing people, where we rejected our identity and calling as his image-bearing people, we rejected our purpose and meant to live as our, for ourselves instead of for him, Jesus did not. And he shows us what it means to perfectly bear the image of God. And so when we, and what more than that, he doesn't just show us as in our example, he does it for us. 
And what happens is on the cross, he trades places with us. And we receive the reward that his perfectly lived life, his perfect image-bearing life resulted in, which is right relationship with God and love and honor. And what he receives from us is the penalty for our rejection of our very identity and purpose. And so when we confess our sin and our failure to live out our identity and purpose as God's image bearers, and we put our faith in Jesus to redeem us and restore us. He, by the power of his spirit, begins to put our mirrors back together so, so that together, that more and more, we start to reflect him, the perfect image of God. Without him, without his redeeming and renewing and restoring work in us, your mirror will always be cracked and broken. Without him, you cannot reflect the image of God perfectly as you were always designed and intended to do. But through a humble faith in him, you have all you need to live out your identity as calling as a, as a man or woman who has been made equally and uniquely to bear God's image. What we'll see next week is how Jesus is the, not just the perfect image bearer, but how he shows us with his own life what it looks like for both men and women to live out their identity as image bearers. I can't wait to show you that next week. It's such good news as we see Jesus playing the, the he shows us what it looks like for men and women both to live out our identity as image bearers. But what we're doing is every week as we take communion together, as we close our time, is that we're remembering Jesus. We're reminding ourselves about all that he has done for us. We're remembering that without his body and blood broken and shed for us, that we would still be sinners with broken mirrors who are unable and, and guilty and condemned for our rejection and rebellion against God, but with him and because of faith in his blood and his life lived on our behalf, what we have is a life and a freedom. And more than that, we have the spirit of God who empowers us to be the people he calls us to be. And so what we're doing every week when we take communion is remembering and we're celebrating those truths, those realities. Communion, it doesn't make you right with God. It doesn't save you. The Bible's clear that faith in Jesus alone on your behalf, his life lived for you, his death died in your place, that that's what makes you right with God. Instead, communion is about remembering all that he has done so that we might be out of that we might be filled again with a love for him and a joy that comes from seeing that he did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And so we are motivated again to live a life unto him, no longer to live for ourselves and our own glory based on our own feelings and based on our own desires, but instead to live for him and his glory. And so if you are here today and you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, I just want you to know I'm so glad that you are here. You are welcome in this church. You are welcome in this community. In fact, I'm, I'm, I'm honored that you would join us. But I'd encourage you, hold off on taking communion. See, communion is about remembering all that Jesus had done and celebrating what that means for us. And I don't want you to feel like you're just doing something, you're going through the motions of something you don't believe in your heart. And so instead, my hope and prayer is that you might take hold of Jesus by faith and that you might allow him to inform what it looks like for you to have a very purpose and identity as a human as well as a man or woman. 
And so communion might not be right for you this morning, but Jesus is. And this community is. And I, I want you to know deeply you are welcome here. If you have trusted Jesus and believe the gospel, then during our time of worship, I'd encourage you, go back and take communion. There are two tables in the back, and this week we're kind of returning to our kind of pre-COVID communion style, and so you'll see that there's bread and juice and the, on the tables in the back, and during our time of worship, whenever you feel led, you can go back and take communion. You can dip the bread in the juice as a re- reminder of Jesus' body broken for you and his blood shed for you. And also, I know that there are so many complexities with COVID and the world that we live in. And so there's also um, the, the packs that we have been using throughout our, the last few months. And if you feel more comfortable doing that, then those are there as well to be used by you in any way, shape, form. You see, the, again, the point is not the what bread you take or what option you use, but it's that we're remembering Jesus. That we're reminding ourselves of his blood given for us. His life lived perfectly bearing the image of God on, in our place, on our behalf, so that we might be filled with his spirit through faith in him to live like him for his glory. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We need you. We are so woefully inadequate without you. God, we thank you for the reminder this morning in your word that you have made us as your image-bearing people, and so we have immeasurable dignity and value and worth, not because of what we do, but because of who you have said that we are, who you tell us we are. We're thankful as well, Jesus, that you have made us as men and women both equal in your eyes and yet distinct. And we pray as we study both this week and next week, God, that you would help us to see the good news, the life that you have in store for us as we uniquely and distinctly bear your image as men and women. God, we want to reflect your glory. We want to be a people who shows the world what you are like. Jesus, thank you that you came, not just to tell us about how we should live, but to live the life we were to live for us. Thanks that by faith in you, you empower us by your spirit, not just to know what we should do, but to be the people you've made us to be. Help us to trust you, to reject our self-made identities, and to give ourselves as your image-bearing people for your glory. God, that's for our good as well, we pray. Amen.